Good to be with you um, again tonight. And um, you're good. We're going to continue our series this evening um, on First John, and we're almost at the very end. In fact, this should be our next to the last sermon, and um, and uh, it's it's what John concludes his letter with. I believe is is very appropriate and be helpful for us this evening. But before we begin, let's uh, pray together one more time. Father, I thank you for this privilege and opportunity to worship you through the hearing of your word. And we just thank you, God, for your word, that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that your spirit, Lord, when we hear your word, your spirit quickens us and makes it powerful. God, to our hearts and to our minds, showing us, God, what to believe and trust and obey, convincing us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thank you for the testimony of Jesus that you have given to us by the water, by the blood, and by the Spirit, Lord. In 2,000 years after our Lord's ministry, Lord, they still speak. And so I pray this evening, Lord, that you would speak to us. You, Lord Jesus, said that your sheep hear your voice. And so I pray that we would hear your voice tonight, Lord. And if there is one in here who does not have the Son, does not know you, Jesus, does not truly believe in you and follow you, I pray that tonight, Lord Jesus, they may see that there is none like you to forgive sins, and to give eternal life. And I pray that they might believe in you and trust in you tonight and be saved. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now we're going to talk about believe the testimony for the Son. Believe the testimony for the Son. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 John uh, chapter uh, 6. Excuse me, chapter 5, because there's only five chapters. Test. That was a test. And you all passed. Congratulations. First John chapter 6, I mean 5. <laughs> test number 2, and you're still passing. Okay, that's what is it, verse 6. We're going to start in verse 6. That's why my mind is off I am. We're going to start in verse 6. First John chapter 5, verse 6. Okay, so... Um, uh, as we begin, I, I want to mention um, a very powerful time in my life that not many people uh, are aware of. Um, uh, when Meg and I got married, it was a wonderful day. I mean, you know, probably one of the very best days of my life. And it was just an incredibly worshipful day. And it was just... Um, uh, it's, well, it's just hard to describe. But there was a, there was a, a part of that day which uh, very few people are aware of, and I, I actually haven't spoken of it very often. But, you know, everybody, there's, you know, people are taking pictures and all kinds of stuff's happening. But all my groomsmen had to go and they had to leave to take pictures 
you know, with the bride before the wedding and, you know, obviously did not participate in that. And so for, for a brief time, I was actually left alone before the wedding there. Um, and, uh, and I didn't anticipate that. I didn't know things would play out like that. But in God's kind providence, it just gave me some moments of just silence to just reflect on what was about to take place and the covenant that we were about to make together. And, um, and it was just a sweet moment, a gift from God, really, uh, of worship. Um, now, now, why do I mention that? Because that, that time was very important for me. It was very impactful for me. It was a powerful time. Uh, and tonight, we're going to be talking about testimony. And it just came to my mind because it just made me think, you know, I can't, I can't prove to anybody that that, that time happened. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no recording of it. You just have to take my word for it. And you have to decide whether I'm a trustworthy witness of that season in my life and that event happening and the meaning and the, the impact that it had on my life. You just have to accept my testimony on that. And John has written this letter to these believers, and he's trying to tell them and teach them what is true. And he is telling them uh, about these testimonies that there are concerning Christ, how they shouldn't believe these false testimonies, they should believe the true testimonies. And you see, it's just important to understand that in all of life, we're, people, we hear things and people tell us things. I mean, you know... <laughs> A big thing now people talk about all the time is fake news. In other words, in other words, we are told stuff all the time. The, the question is, how do you know what's true? Whose testimony do you believe? Because at the end of the day, we accept testimonies based on the testifier, those who are giving and bearing witness. And so as John concludes, these, concludes his letter, he wants to strengthen their faith and encourage them and strengthen them against these false teachings by telling them there's testimony. There's testimony for the Son. And this testimony must be believed in. And to believe the testimony is eternal life. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight from 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. So, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. John says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God, has, that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. The Word of God. You may be seated. 
So we're just going to see two simple truths from this passage this evening. Number one, there are three testimonies to the truth of Christ. There are three testimonies to the truth of Christ. And then number two, belief in the testimonies is eternal life. Belief in the testimonies is eternal life. So first, number one, there are three testimonies to the truth of Christ. So John is closing out his letter here and he's giving his final refutation of the false teaching of those who had defected from uh, this community of Christians. And John's focus here is on the testimony. The testimony about who Christ is. And as we've talked about this whole time, we have to believe the truth about who Christ is. We can't believe in our own, in our own uh, Jesus of our own uh, imagination because our faith is only as good as the one in whom it is placed. And there's many people today who believe and proclaim a false conception of Christ that's not true to who he is and who he was. And John is writing this letter uh, in his day combating those who were holding a false view of Christ and he's saying that there are testimonies concerning the true reality of who Christ is. The word testimony, the noun testimony and the verb testify are together used Ten times in these seven verses. And so, uh, why focus on on testimony here uh, at the end of this letter? Well, the Christian faith is based on testimony. That's what we base, in reality, our faith in. The New Testament, in fact, is uh, the writings of those who were apostles. That is, eyewitnesses of the life, uh, ministry, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The New Testament is a recording of what? Of testimony, of who Christ is, and of what he, done in the, uh, what he did in the implications of what he has done for us and for the church. The New Testament is based on testimony. Anytime someone tells us anything, we either accept or reject their testimony. And John, at the end of his letters, wants these Christians to believe, and he wants us to believe 2,000 years later, to believe the testimony of the truth about Christ. And so, first here in verse 6, John says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And so... In phrasing it this way, it seems, you know, John is combating here these uh, false teachers, this false um, gospel. And he says, not by water only, but by water and the blood. So whatever it is that he's talking about, and we'll try to explain it later, it, it seems that the false group here, these false teachers, they accepted that Jesus came by water. But they didn't accept that Jesus came by blood. And so John wants to make clear here that Jesus, who is the Christ, came not by water only, but by water and the blood. And so, of course, we have to ask what this means. And this is probably the most contested um, part of the entire book. But I'm inclined to see 
water as a reference to Jesus's baptism. As a reference to Jesus's baptism. Because in this passage, it's focused on testimony. About testimony, about what? About the truth, about who Christ is. And Jesus' baptism makes sense then in this context. Because what happened at Jesus' baptism? What were the circumstances of Jesus' baptism? Well, he was baptized by John the Baptist. And if you remember, God, uh, John the Baptist came. His mission was to prepare the way. For the Messiah and to make him known and to, um, and to let people know who he was. And, jo- and God told John, you see, God told John, the one on whom you see the spirit descend and rest, he is the one. He is my son. He is the Messiah. And so John's baptism ministry was actually for the purpose of identifying the Messiah, And of course, when John baptized Jesus, the Spirit did descend like a dove and rest on him. And not only that, but another bore witness to Christ at Jesus' baptism. The Father himself spoke from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What is that? It's testimony of who Christ is. Everybody who heard the voice at Jesus' baptism who was present should have known at that point who Jesus was. There was no ambiguity. God was making known to the world at the baptism of his son who Jesus Christ, in fact, truly was. And so I think it makes sense then that water, uh, that Jesus coming by water is a reference to his baptism. And as we discussed, the defectors accepted this fact. And, you know, this probably makes sense based on uh, one of the false teachings that we know uh, was occurring around that time, uh, as, as I've mentioned before. The false teaching that Jesus wasn't the Christ in the totality of his being, but he was just more or less a regular person who received the spirit of the Christ at baptism, at his baptism, and then whom that spirit departed from before his uh, crucifixion. And so they were denying that Jesus was the Christ in and of himself, that is, the the whole totality of his being. But rather they were saying that he he was just a regular man on whom the spirit of the Christ came to fulfill a certain purpose for a certain season. But that's a false understanding of the true nature of Christ. Because we believe that Christ was not just Christ for a few years, but he was born as the Son of God of a virgin without sin. The fulfillment of every promise. And who died and rose again and who stands right now at the right hand of God the Father. And so it would make sense then if that's the case that Jesus uh, coming by water was a reference to his baptism and that the defectors would accept this fact. However, they would not accept the fact that Jesus also came by the blood. And the blood almost certainly is a reference to Jesus's crucifixion, Jesus's death. The blood testifies to who Jesus was as well. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. And so it was, uh, it was mysterious to be sure, but there was clear evidence in the Bible that part of the ministry of the Messiah 
was his sin atoning death. And so the blood, Jesus' shed blood, testifies to the reality of who he was. You see, the Jews misunderstood this as well, not just these false teachers, but the Jews couldn't understand how the Messiah could die. That doesn't make sense. The, the Messiah was supposed to be a reigning king. How could he die? But you see, they misunderstood as well. But that they misunderstood that the blood itself is a testimony that Christ is, not isn't, but is the Messiah. Because it was foretold that he would come to die for the sins of his people. And so what we see then that Jesus is the Christ from beginning to end, from his birth to the present day, right now where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And so the water and the blood testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God in flesh, which is what the false teachers were denying. And so John goes further here and he says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth at the end of verse 6 there. So there are two two tests that testify, the water and the blood, but there is a third witness as well. It is the Spirit. Verses 7 and 8 says, uh, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So I think one way to look at what John is saying here is that John is pointing us to uh, three witnesses of Christ. And I don't think this is accidental, right? Uh, in, the, in the Jewish uh, law, uh, no, uh, no charge could be established apart from the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so this is intentional by John. He is saying that there are sufficient witnesses. There is sufficient witness to Christ for everyone to believe the truth about who he is. And there are two, he says, external or objective witnesses to Christ, the water and the blood. And then there is one internal and subjective witness to Christ, that is the Holy Spirit. So that is that the water and the blood testify that Jesus is God's Son in the flesh in time and in space and in history. Jesus' baptism was a real historical event. The Spirit descending on Jesus was a real historical event. God speaking from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, is a real historical event. Jesus' crucifixion on the cross and subsequent resurrection is a real historical event. And these events are witnesses. They testify to the truth about who Christ is, God's son, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the forgiver of sins. And then, John says, there is one internal and subjective witness. That is the Holy Spirit which we've been talking about at length, and which John talked about at length, especially in reference to the new birth. That is, the Spirit bears internal witness in our hearts that the truth, that the, bears internal witness that these external witnesses are true. It is the Spirit that convinces us that the, that the water and the blood do indeed tell us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is the Spirit. Paul says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so is the spirit that is the third witness, the internal and subjective witness that convinces us of the truth about Christ. And all these three serve the same end. These three witnesses serve the same end to produce faith that leads to eternal life. And that's what John is concerned about. He's concerned about people believing in the truth about Christ, believing in the Son, so that by, by, by believing in the Son, you may have life. That's what John's concerned about. That's humanity's greatest need. That's everybody in this room. That's our greatest need right now is to have life. 
is to have life. And John is saying that life is found in the Son. And we have full warrant to believe in the Son because there are three witnesses to Him. The blood, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. John goes on to say that the Spirit is the truth. Uh, The Spirit uh, is uh, the truth. Uh, At the end of verse uh, 6 there. And so... What that means most likely uh, is that whatever comes from the Spirit is true. This, or the Spirit can only teach truth. Right? Paul, Apostle Paul said no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. And so what, if this, whatever the Spirit teaches us is true, John has explained earlier in the letter that, that the Spirit is the anointing. We have an anointing, John says, that teaches you, that teaches us all things. And we said that was the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the, in, in the, the gospel, uh, John says the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Is the Spirit of truth. And so we hear of the water and the blood through the preaching of the gospel, but it's the Spirit that convinces us of these truths and testifies internally of these, uh, of these uh, truths. And John goes on to say this, he says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So, uh, in, in this verse here, we have to ask ourselves, uh, in verses uh, uh, 9, we have to ask, what, what is he referring to when he says the testimony of God? If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Is he just referring to the Spirit, or is he referring to all three, the water, the Spirit, and the blood? I think he's referring to all three, the water, the Spirit, and the blood. Through Jesus' baptism, through Jesus' crucifixion, and through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, John is calling that the testimony of God. All three of those things John is saying is the testimony of God. This is what God has done to tell us the truth about his Son. These are the testimonies of God. The question is, are we going to believe the testimony or not? This is the testimony of God. And so, as we said earlier, if we, as John says, if we will receive man's testimony, how much more should we receive God's testimony? You know, sometimes people ask, you know, well, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, we believe it on the word of testimony. Testimony of the apostles who wrote down what they saw and heard under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the recorded for us in the books of the New Testament. It's, and it's really, that's the same measure that we believe anything. Why do, how, why do we believe that uh, George Washington was the first president of the United States? It, you, it, you can't verify it apart from what? Apart from what other people wrote down and told us. And we either have to take their word for it or not. You can't put, you can't go back in history. You can't put a historical event in a test tube. You either have to accept the testimony of what other people have said or not because we can't investigate those things apart from receiving testimony. And, and so it's just, you know, and so we, we have to believe, I mean, you know, in many other historical figures of ancient times, for example, for example, Alexander the Great, how do we know that he had one of the largest empires in history? Well, we don't apart from People who wrote it down and testified about it. You know, and the question is, do we believe it or not? Do we believe it or not? Is there, is there valid evidence, reason to believe the testimony? And what John is saying here is that these testimonies, the water and the blood, 
by the Spirit. These are testimonies not just of man, John says, but these are testimonies of God. God has given us the testimony of His Son recorded by the apostles and handed down to us. With, by the way, far greater historical attestation than any other historical event of ancient times. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. One of the most important things we could do, I mean, you know, if someone's skeptical about Christianity, one of the things I would ask them to do, I would say, well, read the New Testament and ask yourselves, ask yourselves about who's writing it and ask, are they trustworthy? Learn and, and read. Read the Apostle Paul. I mean, for me, it's just, well, like if you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, he was, he was such a man that was ravished and changed by the grace of God. Something miraculous happened to that man, and it all comes out in the letters that he writes to the churches as he writes about how God met him on the Damascus Road, and he proclaimed the truth, and he told these other Christians, and he sacrificed his life and traveled all over the, the known Roman world at great personal cost to tell them that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and that he had saw him with his own two eyes. And he was testifying to that, to who? To, the, to these other Greeks and Romans, who, who what? Who didn't have the opportunity to see Christ with their own two eyes. So they had to do what? They had to take Paul as testimony. The question is, can we believe him? Well, Paul did what? He went and died a martyr's death for saying what? That Jesus Christ is alive. He proclaimed one of the greatest and most beautiful ethics of speaking the truth in love, of not lying to one another, of not deceiving one another. To not believe the testimony of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is to say that this man who gave his, literally his life for the sake of the gospel and who taught one of the most beautiful ethical systems that the world has ever seen, we would have to say that he was a liar or a fool. How do you determine if somebody's testimony is true? Well, you look at the trustworthiness of the person. You look if they're willing to count the cost to believe what they're actually trying to tell you. You look at if their life is consistent with the testimony that they are giving you. When I read the New Testament, when I look at the lives of those who wrote down the New Testament, the apostles Peter and John and Paul, I can't help but look at their lives and say, they're trustworthy. What they have spoken is true. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And nearly all of them went to martyrs' deaths because of their testimony, having nothing to gain by it except that they knew that Christ was alive. And that made all the difference. This is the testimony that we have from God. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. It is the greatest news that has ever been told. It is... Uh, the greatest history that has ever been recorded. No single human being has impacted human history like a obscure carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus Christ. These are the testimonies. It is the greatest testimony that we have in the world that God has intersected the world in time and history and space in His Son, Jesus Christ, who is alive today. So number one, there are three testimonies to the truth of Christ. And number two, belief in the testimonies is eternal life. Belief in the testimonies is eternal life. Verse 10, 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. John begins here by saying, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. He has the testimony in himself. It seems to me what that means is that that whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. That, that is, he's eterni- he has internalized the testimony concerning the Son. He has internalized it. It has become part of him. It has changed him. Remember, for John, the testimony or the truth is not merely propositions on a page. For John, the truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 1.14, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the truth or the testimony is not merely propositions about Christ, but the powerful, life-changing power that transforms us from the inside out. That's why the Apostle Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The truth about Christ and who he is and what he came to do, it's not just idle words. It's literally life-changing power that when we speak the truth about who Christ is into the lives of others, it has the power to save souls and enlighten eyes and unstop ears and to awaken people from death to life. It's the truth in and of itself that has power. And so... This, uh, we, when we, to believe then, when, we, when the truth is in us, when we have the testimony in ourselves, it is when these life-changing realities have been internalized like life-saving medicine that softens hard hearts and makes clear our blurry vision and opens our deafened ears. To believe is to have the testimony of Christ at the core of who we are. That is not just mental ascent, but a life-changing, belief-changing reorientation of our worldview, of the way that we look at the world because we believe the truth about... If you really believe the truth about Christ, it will change the way you look at the world. It has to, right? Because if Christ is not real, well then, eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. We came from nothing, we're going to nothing. Life is meaningless and nothing matters. Because we're all cosmic accidents, a bunch of cells that happen to bump into each other over a bunch of times. You don't mean anything and I don't mean anything. We're just accidents of time and space. That's, if, that, if, if you believe that, that's the truth. But if, we, but if Christ is true, then your life matters infinitely. If Christ is real, then, then you don't just die and go nowhere. You die and face an almighty God before whom we'll have to give an account for what we did in the body with the life that he gave us. If Christ is real, then there is hope for forgiveness of sin so that we don't have to stand before God in our sins, but that we can be 
forgiven of our sins and welcomed into God's eternal family and live with him forever in a world free from sin. What you believe really does make a difference in your life. So the question is, do you have the testimony in yourself? Has it changed you? Has it transformed you? Has it renewed you? And then John continues by saying this. He says, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So there are these three testimonies, the water, the blood, and the spirit. They are the testimonies that God has borne uh, concerning his son. So these are the historical realities uh, of Christ as recorded and passed down by the apostles in the New Testament. And so to disbelieve these testimonies, says John, is to disbelieve God himself. That's what John is saying. To disbelieve these testimonies is to disbelieve God himself. And so I think this is quite astounding if we think about it. John is writing this letter probably in the mid-80s A.D. So he's writing this letter about 50 years after the life of Jesus. And he is... And he's talking about these testimonies of the water and the blood. Well, 50 years after Jesus, the people that he's writing to are really in a very similar boat than we, that we are 2,000 years later. They could not go back and visit Jesus' baptism and go back in time and see it. They couldn't go back to the day Jesus was crucified and see it with their own two eyes. They had to what? Accept John's testimony, just like we do. 2,000 years later. So, but John is saying that these testimonies of which he has told them about the water and the blood, these testimonies, even though they're out of other people's immediate reach, he is still saying that these testimonies are not merely his testimonies, but they are God's testimonies. They're God's testimonies. And so, just as we have to listen and take John and trust him that he's speaking the truth about Christ. So the people in John's own day, 50 years after the fact, had to do the same thing. And so the point is, is that John is equating his testimony about what he saw. John was there. John saw it. John heard the voice from heaven. John saw Jesus crucified. And Jesus looked at John and said, behold your mother and behold your son. John was there. John saw those things. But see, John is equating. He says that this is not, his, not just his testimony, but it's God's testimony. John is equating his testimony with God's testimony. John is saying that if you don't believe me, you're not believing God. And so what, the, what this means is that to, not, to disbelieve John and the other apostles is to disbelieve God himself. To disbelieve the New Testament is to disbelieve God himself. That's strong language, but that's what John is saying. And so it, it, go, it, it helps us understand, too, of how, how strongly they understood their writings in the Scriptures to be. Because John is equating his writing with the testimony of God himself. That's why we believe that this Bible is the Word of God. And that's why we really mean it when we say to disbelieve this Bible is to disbelieve God Himself, because that's what John is saying. You know, many people say, you know, I've heard things like, well, you know, people ask atheists, you know, what will you do if you stand before God? And they say, well, you know, I'll say, well, you didn't give me enough evidence to believe in you. 
And God's going to say, wrong. That's not true. In fact, we can say Jesus appointed it this way. In Matthew 10, 40, when Jesus was sending out his disciples, he told them then during his ministry, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And then in Luke, in parallel passages, when he sends out the 72, as Jesus says in Luke 10, 16, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Who's, John, who's, Jesus, who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to the ones who he's sending out to proclaim the gospel. And he's saying to those he's sending out to proclaim the gospel, hey, if they reject you, they're rejecting me. Well, who are the apostles? The ones Jesus sent out who wrote down the New Testament and their associates. So to reject them, according to the words of Jesus, is to reject Christ. Because they're the ones whom he has appointed to be his witnesses. You know, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you remember the story. The rich man is in hell, and Lazarus was the poor man. And Lazarus goes to be at Abraham's side in paradise. And the rich man looks up into paradise and asks Abraham to send Lazarus, the beggar, down to put a couple, of, put a drip of cold water on his tongue because he's in anguish in the flame. And Abraham said, no. There's a great chasm that's fixed so that no one can cross from one to the other. And then the rich man tells Abraham this in Luke 16. He says, and he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Jesus agrees with John. Jesus agrees with John. The scriptures are enough. The scriptures are enough testimony to the truth about who Christ is. Written down by men, inspired by God, it is the testimony of Christ to who he is. The water and the blood. And John is appealing for us to believe it. And as he closes the letter, this is what John says. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. This is, John makes clear and unambiguous, perhaps the greatest and most relevant truth that we hold as Christians that the world needs to know And that it really is that simple. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It really is that simple. We have rebelled against God. We have shaken our tiny little fists up at heaven and said, not thy will be done, but my will be done. But God, in his mercy, sent forth his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He succeeded where we failed. He was perfect where we sinned. He stood in the gap for us. God loves his son. God gave his son for us. God sent his son in our stead to be obedient where we were disobedient, to believe where we disbelieved, to trust where we didn't trust, to, to die so that we could live. God sent his son in mercy in our place. In John 3.36, John the Baptist said, Whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. To get to the Father, he has ordained it that to get to the Father, you have to go to the Son. God loves his Son. We don't deserve God's grace and mercy, but God sent his Son for us, and God loves his Son. And if you come to the Father through his Son, (laughs) there's nothing that can keep you from him. Why? Because he loves his Son that much. That's how it works. Not for our sake, but for Christ's sake. When we join with Christ, when we unite with him by faith, when we believe in him and trust in him as our only hope, as the son of God, as the savior of the world, God looks down and he sees that faith in your heart and he sees how much you love his son. And he says, if you love my son, you're in. Not because you deserved it, but because my son deserves it. And if you love my son, I'm gonna give it to you as a gift. To have the son is to have life. To not have the son is to not have life. And as we close this evening, I just pray that all, everyone in here would have the son and would have life. And if you don't have the son, the Bible says you don't have life, but you can if you will come to him, believe in him, trust in him, follow him, love him, embrace him. And God will see that faith. He'll see your love for his son. And then he'll call you a son and daughter too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for...